Pastor Ola and I were talking this morning, we were both saying that um, we're big believers as, as much as we have to grieve during these times, um, we kind of need to go on as business as usual. We kind of need to go on and continue um, doing things, and, and what I mean by that is preaching a sermon. And so it's, there's time for that as well. I do want to um, con- confess to one little uh, mess up. We put out cards last week for Malcolm, and they've disappeared. We have no idea where they are. Somebody could have taken them home, thought, oh, wow, the church has given me a birthday card. It's not even my birthday. It was very nice of them. You're welcome. (laughs) Take it. I hope you enjoy it. The kids have made a new card for Malcolm because those two cards have got up and walked away. We put them out, and uh, they are completely gone. And so today, in addition to the cards for the Sandy Hook victims, we would ask, and again, happy birthday, Malcolm, we would ask that you sign the new card uh, for Malcolm <laughs> that the children are making. <laughs> Sorry about that. But you know what, Malcolm? It's going to be a lot more meaningful than those other two ones that we just bought at the store. Okay. So we are still in this series called The Manual God With Us, and one of the things that I like, love showing, I just love to, to show this off, is how amazing God is in his plan. How incredible it was that he came to earth and how he actually started the process thousands and thousands of years before. God, we ask that you'd bless us as we go. And so I actually just want to get right into it today. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Genesis chapter 15. And uh, if you don't, it'll be up on the screen. So we're just going to dive into the scripture today. And, um, As we go through it, you might be saying, what on earth does this have to do with Christmas? And um, you'll get it. You'll see it eventually, uh, but probably in the last five minutes of the message. Let's get into it. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be an heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur, the Chandelans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, did not cut, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down to the carcass, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into the deep sleep, and a thick of dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a country not of their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. 
and afterward they will come with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kizanites, the Camerites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Rephidites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershites, and I don't know how to say that name, and the Jezebites. And that's it. Obviously, the picture of Christmas that you were all coming and hoping to hear. Um, Abraham had this covenant with God. Not exactly the picture of Christmas that you came here uh, thinking that you were going to hear today. So we have to remember a couple things here. I'm going to walk us through this, and we're going to see how this all kind of comes together. One, God took Abram out, and he said, look up at the stars. One of the things that we have to realize at this time is the belief that the stars actually represented God's royal court. And, and so if, he, if God took him out and said, look up at the stars, he's saying, look up at my royal court. And all the people that preside in my royal court, Abram would have believed that all these stars were actually worshiping, were actually like people or angels worshiping God in God's royal heavens and majesty in his throne. He would have believed this. And then he said, your household will eventually outnumber my household. To Abram, this is an outrageous claim. Completely outrageous that God would say, by the way, what I'm going to do for you is make your descendants even greater than the number of the heavenly hosts, of the stars in the sky. Because Abram would have heard, I'm going to make your family bigger than mine. And back then, having a big family was the only thing that you really had. It was really the only commodity that you had. Your life was your only commodity. Sure, you could have money, sure, you could have cattle, sure, you could have all that stuff, but that stuff's fleeting. Your life and your family was all that you had. So he says, I'm going to make you this promise. And in order to do this promise, I want you to bring these animals, and we're going to make a covenant together, just like a marriage is a covenant relationship. We're going to covenant together. By the way, I'm, I'm seeking a whole new way to do marriages here. They're going to bring these goat, ram, and heifer together. We're going to slice them in half and lay them in a circle Who's ready to get married next? <laughs> Don't wear white. I know. So anyways, this is, but this uh, covenant, I mean, a lot of times we read over this kind of stuff in the Old Testament. We go, oh, okay, that was a strange way to do a covenant. But this is actually a common Bronze Age covenant-making agreement. What they would do, and it's in other places in the Bible, in Jeremiah, they use it to free slaves. What they do is they cut a heifer or a, a cow in half, they separate the sides, and you have to pass between it. I know it sounds completely strange, but in a world where your life is your only commodity, what you're doing by passing through it with another person is saying, if I do not hold up my end of the bargain, may I be like these cattle. May I be like these goats. May I be like these rams. In other words, you're saying, if I break this covenant, I deserve to die. Does that make sense? You with me here? Because there's a lot of stuff that's going to have to make sense in order for you to get where it is we're going here. So, this is a sacred promise among leaders. Leaders do this with each other. Now, when a leader is making a peace treaty, they might do this. And what they're doing and what they're saying is, your people will now be my people. 
that we're almost, in effect, trading and swapping places here for the protection of each other. So it's really about identity. It's really um, uh, about all that stuff. And this idea would have been called um, a corridor of blood, and it made a blood agreement. And these happened all the time in the Bronze Age. This is something that was extremely common. And one of the reasons why, by the way, if you read the Bible and you know that this is just a totally common practice, is if you're reading it and there's zero explanation. Because the writers of the time were like, oh yeah, everybody will know what we're talking about, you know, as they're writing this down. If they write something down that's an unusual practice, usually they state why they're writing that down. So in other words, this is a very common thing. Among leaders, animal sacrifice is just the norm. It's just what everybody did. So we know this um, because it's written in other texts. It's written all over the place in other texts of the the period of the time. And um, as these two leaders pass by each other, they're exchanging places symbolically. So, So they're symbolically taking each other's spot. So they're saying, your people are now united with my people and mine yours. And for a covenant to work, both parties need to participate. So on top of that, when somebody passes through the corridor of blood, when they, and when they sacrifice these animals, it was symbolically surrendering your own life, like a death to self, and submitting yourself to that other person. Um, so like I said, this is in the book of Jeremiah, and in the book of Jeremiah, uh, they did this to release slaves, in, to, for slaves to go free. But really it was about taking on a new identity. For Abram, it was about taking on a new identity. And for people who participate in this covenant, they commonly took on new names or new identities. And just a couple of chapters later, God renames Abram Abraham. And we're going to go into that a little bit in a minute. But in any case, as they swap places, they kind of swap identities and take on each other's identity in this process. So now Abram... Um, what, what's really happening here, the symbolic spiritual side of what's going on here, is that Abram is leaving the fall behind him, the fall of man, sin, and all that happened there, the pride of humanity. He's leaving that behind him and becoming God's man in this world. That's what's happening. And when he says that Abraham believed and God credited it to him as righteousness, what that is really meaning is that God and Abram now have right relationship. In other words, they're each other's guys. They're able to talk to each other. They have correct relationship. Where nobody else had that because of the sin of humanity. So let me recap this for a second. Up until this point, people were living under the curse because of the sin of humanity in the Garden of Eden. And so up until this point, men and women were living this way. They were living with that burden on their shoulders. And what God's doing here is he's saying, okay, I'm going to make a new covenant. You're going to go into a new land. You're going to have a whole people. And we're going to swap identities. Now, it's not that Abram becomes God or God, you know, ceases being God or anything like that. It's that the image of God that God placed in humanity at the very creation is actually restored in Abram at this time. So that God's image is restored in this person. And eventually, the covenant is sealed with this new identity. So we have to understand something here that um, Abram probably could have never foreseen. 
that means that Abram would have taken on the identity of God. Like I said, not that he became God, but it just means that he understands now that he is made in God's image and has God's image in him. And in Genesis 17, he's given the name Abraham. Rabbinical teachers of the Old Testament teach this, that Yahweh, don't fall asleep, we're getting there, we're getting so close. (laughs) Yahweh took his H's out of his name and gave them to Abraham and Sari, which became Sarah. And in other words, placed his identity on his people. People marked for God. That's what they taught. I've turned the sound off here. So if this covenant is about two becoming one, God marks these two people as covenant people. And he puts a new image and identity on them in the likeness of their creator. Now this is what all of Christianity teaches. This is what Christianity, like following Jesus, this is the chief end of Christianity, that we would live more in the image of God, that we would actually be something called Christ-like. It's what holiness is, is that we are Christ-like. In other words, we so surrender ourselves to God, just like Abraham so surrendered himself by walking through this corridor of blood. We so surrender ourselves to God that we take on his new identity and that we live the way that he calls us to live. I mean, listen to some of these verses. They're going to be up on the screen. We're cleansed with his blood. 1 John 2.6, whoever claims to live in him must walk like Jesus did. In other words, so if you claim that you follow Jesus, you've got to walk like him. In other words, you, Jesus lived a sinless life. And, you know, it's difficult to say, oh, you know, you all need to live a completely sinless life. That's not what, exactly what we're calling you to. We're, we're calling you to forgiveness. We're calling you to confession of that sin and walking in the same way Jesus did. In other words, striving to get to that point. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Galatians three twenty seven says, For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. So we have to remember, this is one of the chief ends of Christianity, that we become Christ-like. <coughs> John Stott Um, a theologian who has recently passed on said the chief end of eschatology which is end times is to become christ-like and what he meant by that is we all have a date on our lives we all have an expiration date basically and so for us what that means is that we are to be christ-like in in our lives now The idea is that we have an entirely different identity after being cleansed in the blood of Jesus. So that the idea is if you're, if you're sinful, if you're a person with just messed up junk in your life and you confess that to God and say, God, would you just take this stuff from me and would you cleanse me from all of that? The idea is you actually take on a new identity in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon you and that you would live a different life with God. Those old desires that you had in the past don't actually define you anymore. That old junk that you used to say, the words that used to come out of your mouth no longer will because you've surrendered all that stuff to God and are cleansed and are washed by the blood. But in order to do this, Jesus actually had to do away with death and corruption itself. Jesus had to conquer death 
in order for this to happen. Now, this is all an echo of what happened in this covenant. I know what you're thinking. Pastor Dave, this sounds like an Easter sermon. We're getting there to Christmas. Trust me. So Jesus came to make this covenant on a massive scale. Um, Jesus' new covenant now echoes what happened with Abram and God, that they swapped these identities. And in order for this really to begin, like I said, Jesus had to do away with the power of death. And this would be prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus actually was born and, and echoed in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. But in Hosea chapter 13 says this, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Like I said, I know this sounds like an Easter message, but let's check this out. So now, track back with me back to this idea of this covenant making with God. Abram and God are now standing there in the midst of these animals that are sacrifices, And they're making a new promise together. Now, remember what I said, that covenants only really matter. Like, your marriage covenant only really matters if you both agree to it. If one person's sitting there and like, no, I'm not going to agree to that, does it work? No. It becomes very, very difficult. But both people actually agreed to this. So if the covenant is actually this swap of identities... The only way that God could hold up his end of the bargain with Abram is that if he eventually took our humanity on. The only way that God could hold up that end of the bargain thousands of years before Jesus is if God could actually become human and actually save us from all of our junk. So that covenant, I don't know if Abraham would have thought about this back in the day. I don't know if he would have, he would have said, oh yeah, this is what's going to happen. God will eventually become human. But what God is saying there in the midst of this covenant agreement is, I'm going to put my image on you. You're going to lead my people. And eventually, I will take on your identity. Not that God ceases to be God, but that God is born as man and flesh. Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant between Abraham and Moses. Abraham, I'm sorry, Abraham and Moses. Hopefully you weren't taking notes. Between Abraham and God, Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant. And so what Abraham and God did was just for the people of Israel, what Jesus will now do on the cross is for the entirety of the world. What Abraham and God did to to change one identity and have one person be born so the whole little nation could form so that they could be a light and show uh, and shine to the rest of the world, God started his redemptive plan right there. Abraham held up his end of the bargain, and God's end of the bargain was that he would cleanse the sins of his people. So that we could bear the image of God. Matthew 1, 18, verses, 20, verses uh, 18 through 25 says this. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, and he had mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because she is, con- she is conceived, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Jesus will save people from their sins. He will do the work of God. Just how he credited to Abram is righteous and put a plan in motion to come into this world. He's saying, look, I'm going to fulfill my plan. I'm going to send my son into this world and fulfill my plan. John got this. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. Word meaning Jesus, capital W. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In our church verse, John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is all part of the plan. And if you're following me this morning, this is all part of thousands of years of planning so that we can have God with us. That's it. So that God could be with us. But not only that, Jesus is the only one that can actually create, recreate us in his image. Now, we think about it, the world tries to have us conform to its image all the time. I mean, if you look at media, if you look at um, magazines, if you look at Facebook, anything like that, we are pressured to conform to the world, whatever that might look like in your circles. Whether it's going out, parting it up, or whether it's um, doing certain things or saying certain things, dating certain people. Looking a certain way, the world wants us to conform to its image. But Jesus, who is with God in the beginning, creator of the cosmos, creator of the world, is actually the only one qualified to recreate us in his image. So just as Abram and God passed through this together and Abram took on the image of God and God took on the image of humanity, he came so that he could be human and recreate each one of us in his image. Does that make sense to you? Apparently, Okay, I'm going to read you the entire sermon all over again. So like I was saying... Athanasius says it like this. And Athanasius is a um, 1,700-year-old man. Um, he's long since gone, but he wrote an amazing little book called On the Incarnation. Many of you might not realize that the Bible was actually put together in 300 AD at the Council of Nicaea. And um, some pe- to some people, that, says, that speaks of, um, of scandal. You know, some people say, oh, well, the Bible was put together by man in 300 AD. But if you're any student of the Bible whatsoever, one of the things they did is they used a canon. So they, a canon is basically like a list of qualifications of why this book should be in the Bible. They hotly debated each book. They prayed on each book. And I've got to believe that the Spirit of God was in that room placing these books together in what we now know as our modern-day Bible. Mainly because if you read it and you study it, How on earth can this covenant that was made in the book of Genesis so clearly proclaim the coming of God and what's talked about in Matthew? And how can, I mean, we could go back and forth on these different 
issues, books, uh, articles, uh, uh, things that are written thousands of years all weave together over thousands and thousands of years. So this guy, Athanasius, who was actually present at the Council of Nicaea and actually um, somebody who debated hotly that Jesus was man and Jesus was God and why it actually was important that Jesus and that, that God came as man. And one of the things he said was this, the word of God came in his own person because he, was, he alone was the image of the Father who could recreate man after his own image. In order to effect this recreation, however, he first had to do away with death and corruption. 1,700 years ago, he wrote those words. That Jesus is the only one alone that can change us. Just like if Abram made a covenant with any other person, nothing would have happened. But he didn't make his covenant with the person. He made it with God who took a torch and walked past him and made this covenant together that our life will actually more closely resemble Jesus' life because we've submitted to him. Because God wants us to confess our sin to him. What Jesus did on the cross is this brand new covenant for us. When Jesus passed out the bread and the wine, he says, I make to you a new covenant. In other words, because the old one was fulfilled in his coming, that Jesus became man. It's fulfilled. And so he makes a new covenant with his people, and he says, this is the new deal. I'll give myself for you. I will die on this cross so that you might have brand new life. And for you to have brand new life, you'll take on my image. In other words, you'll have the Holy Spirit dwell within you. Without Jesus coming, he says in John 14, he says, you guys are going to be sad that I'm going away. But in reality, it's actually the best thing for you because if I go away, then the Holy Spirit will come and live within you. This is all planned. that was set in motion thousands of years before Jesus ever breathed his first breath, before he ever was in the manger. God made this plan to come in and, and to be king over his people again. And when he came and died on the cross, just like Mo, uh, Moses, just like Abram and God traded places, just like they swapped, Jesus traded places with us because the penalty of sin is death. Jesus traded places with us so that we can lead this new, clean life and have the mark of God. Maybe you're here today and you have a couple of responses. Um, one, maybe the image, whatever your life is putting off. You know, if, you're, if your life was like a projector and it projected this movie, maybe it's not the movie it's showing is not very Christ-like. Maybe it's not very God-honoring. And I'm not calling anybody to be dorky Christians. Because, you know, we've all done that, right? Oh, God... God, you know, God bless you. And, and, and we say these little, now I'm not saying calling us to use Christianese or anything like that. I'm calling us to really surrender our lives to Jesus. I mean, it's okay if you say God bless you. I'm not trying to make an issue out of that. But all I'm saying is, it's not, we can't just pretend it. We actually need to surrender it. We actually need to give our lives over so that we can be 
reborn with a new life. That's it. We actually need to surrender our lives. And so maybe there's some of you today who, who have never done that and simply need to say yes to Jesus. I mean, that's it, just yes. Jesus, that's it. You took the penalty for me on the cross, and I simply need to surrender that to you. One of the reasons why I like to show that the birth of Jesus was not some isolated incident, but actually was the plan of God from the very beginning is for a few reasons. One, so that you can see the absolute genius of God in all of this. God works through people's intellect. But two, it simply, it simply shows the great lengths that God will go in order to have a relationship with us. That it all started thousands of years before the manger scene even came into existence. It all started before the silent night, the holy night. It all started before that. Maybe you're here and today you simply need to make a new covenant with God. We have cattle outside. I'm kidding. Um, A covenant to live a new life. A covenant to live cleanly. A covenant to, to be restored. Maybe that covenant looks like you simply saying, God, I surrender that to you. Man came to Jesus, his name is Nicodemus, and said, How can it be that I could be reborn? Do I crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm simply talking about is that you surrender that and start again. That's it. I think so many times we lose the simplicity of that message in thinking that we have to do certain things or pray certain things or say certain things, but Jesus simply wants you to say yes to him. That's it. And begin to the process of living a new life. So if that's you today, I'd love if you would mark that on your bulletin, let us know somehow so that we can get you connected into the right discipleship groups. Let's pray. God, as we think about your covenant, as we think about what happened with Abram and you back in that time, Lord, I'm sure he could have never imagined that in order for you to fulfill that covenant, you actually had to become human. God, it just blows my mind that you did that. God, you gave him a new image, Abraham. And God, you want to give us a new life today. Lord, so that we could say, I have decided to follow you. No turning back. No turning back. In the name of Jesus, we pray.